Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. I'm really excited today to begin a new class on the kingdom of God here on Restitutio. Jesus said the kingdom was like a treasure hidden in a field. It's so valuable, it's worth selling everything to purchase. He said to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above what we eat or wear. In this class, we'll spend a great deal of time exploring what the Bible teaches about the kingdom, including hope, gospel, and way. We will also work through the main reasons why Christianity lost the kingdom before looking at how some Christians recovered it throughout church history. This class will not only provide a panoramic and nuanced view, hopefully, of the kingdom, but it will also offer a cohesive ethic to aid navigating our complex world while remaining true to Jesus, the King of the coming kingdom. In this first lecture, we look at the bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation. By developing a robust creation theology, we'll have a better grasp on what the end will be like. In addition to looking at Genesis, we'll consider some of the marvels of God's creation, including relativity, quantum theory, the hydrologic cycle, and bees. In the end, my goal is to convince you that God did a good job making our world, so it makes sense that he would want to restore it in the end. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College and... This way you can do the work to receive a grade. Here now is Podcast 84, Kingdom Restoration. The kingdom was Christ's chief obsession. He says his purpose is to preach the kingdom. He called the kingdom the pearl of great price. He died to redeem us with his blood so that we could be kings and priests and reign in the kingdom. And so... If we are going to measure the importance of the kingdom on the basis of Jesus, we have to say the kingdom is a big deal. The kingdom is important. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Over even the very important subjects of what do do we eat and what do we wear, Jesus says, no, seek the kingdom first before those. And so what I want to do in this class is really build for you an understanding of the kingdom, a comprehensive, grounded understanding in the scriptures and also in history. And I think, or my hope is that this understanding of the kingdom will change your life. I don't think this is the sort of subject that is just interesting or mildly helpful in organizing your theological worldview. I think it's really the center of your theological worldview. It's the center of life as a Christian. And I I realize that might sound a little overstated, but I think as we work through this, you'll, you'll see just how important the kingdom is, not only in understanding the future, but understanding how to think and how to live today. So to start off, I want to go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And it says there, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
What do your translations say there when I read the New World? What do yours say? Truly I say to you in the what? Messianic age. Ooh, nice. What translation is that? The Messianic age. Does anybody else have something different? Uh, the regeneration. The regeneration. We've got an nasb or back there. NASB. Yep. This is that word palingenesia, which is spelled like this. It's uh, made from two words in Greek. This word here, palin, is or pollen is the word for again. It's just a normal word for again, and then. Genesia here is the word for, gen is, you can see Genesis in it, right? Beginning. It's, it's a really cool word, the idea of beginning again, which is why the NASB uses that word regeneration. Gener to generate is to start something off, right? If you generate electricity, it, it produces or brings electricity into existence. So regeneration is like to make things Again, or yours, Rebecca said, the messianic age, which is not at all what the Greek word says, but that's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> it's very creative. But uh, that's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the age when the Messiah reigns on the earth there. Um, but it, and then in my translation, which I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says the new world. Sadly, they're dropping the ball there. I mean, it's, that's, it's okay. But I think regeneration is, is a lot better because new world could give you the idea that the old world gets destroyed and God creates a new world. It's not quite right. Regeneration is better because it's like taking what's old and regenerating it, making it new again. Um, and so Jesus talks about the regeneration. See how I'm emphasizing the word regeneration? So palingenesia, it means regeneration or beginning again. That might be on the quiz. All right. The other one I wanted to look at, just an, another quick text about this whole idea of restoration, is in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. You can go ahead and flip over to Genesis 1. We're going to be there in a minute. But Acts 3.21, kind of cutting it off in the middle of a sentence here, says, Whom heaven must receive until... It's talking about Jesus. Until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We're going to be getting into this in this class. The, the part where it says the holy prophets there, right? We're going to be getting into that today in the later lecture on Isaiah and then tomorrow as well. We're really going to be reading these prophecies and meditating on it. And this is the Apostle Peter speaking to a, 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 an assembly there, and he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is, is in heaven until, so that's important, right? Until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So you can't really understand what Jesus is going to do without understanding what was spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And... This word here for restoring is the word, does anybody know? It's, uh, it's an Anthony Buzzard favorite uh, word, apocatastasis. It's, it's kind of an interesting word, but we won't etymologize it now. I don't think that's a word. Anyhow, it's the, it's the word for restoration. 
It's the idea of taking something and restoring it, making it back to the way it was before. And that's what the Bible's about. <laughs> the Bible starts with this beautiful creation, and, and then it goes wrong. By the end, everything is restored. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about creation itself. Now, if I ask you for a moment, close your eyes and picture the earth. Let's just do that. I wonder, do you see this? Is that what you saw? This is a famous picture called the Blue Marble from 1972 during the Apollo 17 lunar mission. This is what I see when I close my eyes and I picture the earth. If I asked an ancient Israelite to close their eyes and picture the earth, this is what they would see. Soil, land, crops, animals. Because that's, that's earth to them. And so I think it's important to realize and be careful about reading our own assumptions into the Bible. What we want to do is adjust our thinking to what the Bible says, not the other way around. And so in an effort to do that, we begin by looking in the beginning at the first book. And this is chapter one of Genesis, all on one slide. I realize you can't read that. But what we see in Genesis is a very carefully crafted poem, a rhythmic explanation for how everything got started. And it's, it's super important, I'm going to say this probably in a minute, but it's super important to understand the beginning because what you believe about the beginning affects what you believe about the end. And so this is the, the issue of two, two important vocabulary words, eschatology and cosmogony. Does anybody know eschatology? You want to give me a quick definition for that? All right. It's your study of the end, your view of the last times. Cosmogony is um, it's the word beginning and universe. So it's, it's basically your belief about the beginning of the universe. So whatever your beliefs are about the beginning of the universe is your cosmogony. So that's what I want to build for you because generally speaking, I've observed and I hope to prove this to you, those are highly connected. Those are tightly connected because what you believe about the beginning generally colors what you believe will happen in the end. So let's, let's work on the beginning a little bit to this morning. What repeats in Genesis chapter 1? Well, it, it, the part where it says, and God said, repeats over and over again. It begins each one of these units. And then the part at the end of each of the units where it says there was evening and there was morning the next day, whatever day it was, that repeats. And then, let's see what else here. God saw that it was good. That phrase repeats over and over again throughout Genesis chapter 1 a bunch of times. That's in the red there. And then there are uh, other patterns as well. God creates the heavens on day one, and then he populates them on day four. He creates the waters on day two, populates the waters on day five. He creates the dry land on day three and populates it on day six. 
What does this structure communicate to us in Genesis chapter 1, the chapter that tells us about the beginning of the universe? It communicates the orderliness of creation. God did not have to express it through this sort of way. It, he, he could have just said, I made everything, and then go right into Adam and Eve and, and talking about it. But instead, you have this very carefully crafted, orderly account with this defined structure. And that does make sense if you're a universe-creating God, because when we look at the universe, we see all kinds of structure, from billions of stars and galaxies and gravitational forces that hold these objects in relative position to each other. I mean, just look at how we think of time, how we think of a year. It's so consistent, right? <laughs> and how we think of the seasons, you know, and, and the phases of the moon and how things work. You can set your watch by them, literally. That's what we do, we set our watches by them because they are so consistent. And then you look at uh, biological life, you look at animals, you look at plants, and from a very microscopic level, you look at the DNA, crazy organized. The one who made this explanation for the universe, it, it would make sense to have an orderliness to it. And so what I wanna do just to start things off here a little bit is consider f with you a few aspects of creation. Albert Einstein, in the year 1905, imagined riding on a photon. A photon is a particle of light. And he was working at the Swiss Patent Office and when he imagined what it would be like to ride on a photon of light, he conceived of the idea of special relativity, which is that based on how fast you're moving through space, your perception of reality gets distorted. And in particular, time slows down for you. That was one of the conclusions of his, his uh, equations and his work in the special theory of relativity. Did you hear what I just said? The faster you move, the slower time moves. For, now, I'm not talking about how you perceive it. I'm talking, you're gonna perceive it as normal, but everyone else is gonna be moving around super fast from your perception because time literally slows down for you the faster you go. Now, we don't ever go that fast for it to affect us on Earth, right? Um, you, have to, you have to be going incredibly fast, like the speed of light for this, or getting close to the speed of light for this effect to take place. But that's just, regardless of whether you understand it or I understand it, that's just how the universe works. It's just a weird place. It's way weirder than many of us realize. And about 10 years later, Einstein started thinking about gravitation. And he conceived of the general theory of relativity in the year 1915. And what he concluded there was that all of space-time is like a fabric. Imagine it like a big piece of rubber, on a, like, a, like a tabletop made out of rubber. And objects that have mass deform the shape or the, or the surface of the table. So if you put like a basketball in the middle of a table made of rubber, it would sink down, right? And it would warp the space-time fabric. That's what he decided space is really like. And as a result of that, 
the closer you move to a strong gravitational field, the slower time moves for you, hence the movie Interstellar. And you have this weird relationship. And, and he actually was able to prove it because there was an eclipse. And you know, based on Newtonian laws, where the stars are supposed to be in the sky. And when there is an eclipse, the moon blocks the sun in an eclipse, right? However, the, the starlight has to pass by the sun in order to get to your eye because it's an eclipse in the middle of the day, so the starlight's going past the sun. So the gravitational field of the sun itself warped space, and the stars that were supposed to be there were shifted over. And that's how he was able to prove his theory of gravitational general relativity. I'm not going to quiz you on Albert Einstein. My point is simply this. The universe is an awesome place where awesome things happen, like time dilation, like gravitational warping of space-time fabric. Whether we understand it or not, that's just how our universe works. And then the field of quantum mechanics came about in the middle of the 20th century. Scientists like Murray Gell-Mann, Richard Feynman, Niels Bohr, all these brilliant people started doing work on particles that are super small. And the first atom smashers came into existence. And what they, one of the things they did, once again, was they worked on light. And so what they would do is they would they would shine a light and they would have a slit over here and the light would of course pass through the slit and then be picked up on a uh, some sort of detector and you would, you would basically, you know, as time went on it would just kind of fill in the, the slit on the paper behind it. And, and even if they slowed it down to just one photon at a time of light shooting through there, the light just simply acted like a particle. In other words, if this was a gun and you were shooting it, the, part, the bullets or BBs or whatever that got through the slit would actually hit the target behind it, but the other ones would get blocked. That's the way particles work. That's the way projectiles work. And then they did another experiment with uh, two slits and the same sort of thing. And on the detector, instead of getting what you would think, two, two uh, shadows or shiny parts where the, the slits were there, instead you, you get these weird wave patterns where um, it's like there are two waves going through and there are certain places where the waves will cancel each other out and then other places where they amplify each other like this with these interference patterns on it where the two waves cancel each other out. This is kind of turned sideways. And then they meet in the middle and they're, sh they're brighter in the middle. So basically what the scientists concluded from this is that light itself is both a particle and a wave. That's insane, right? If light, if light is like a particle, then it moves straight ahead, just like a bullet from a gun. If it's a wave, then it moves like the ocean, right? And, and there are these undulations. For whatever reason, light, one of the most basic objects, or uh, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, components yeah, components of the universe behaves in this really weird way. And light also travels at the speed at which time stops which is just no big deal for, for light. It would be a big deal for us. <laughs> but 
Because it also has no mass. And it has no mass, right? So that's our universe. Let's get out of the realm of abstract physics for a moment, and let's, let's consider, let's say you were a universe maker, and you want to, say you imagine the world where it didn't rain. Okay, let's imagine that it, it, it doesn't rain. And let's say you wanted to irrigate the entire United States with water from the ocean. Right? Let's just say that that's, that's the situation we're in. You want to irrigate the United States with water from the ocean. What kinds of problems would you have to solve to do that? Desalinization, right? You'd have to get that salt out. What else? Get the water to where it's going. How are you going to transport the water? You could use pipes, you could use trucks, you could use flying objects, I guess. <laughs> what about the winter when the pipes freeze? Right? I mean, it would be a massive undertaking. Then you have to have a distribution center uh, system, some sort of way to use sprinklers or whatever to get the water distributed so it's not just all in one place. How did God solve that problem? He invented evaporation. I mean, think about how brilliant evaporation is. You've got some water on the table and you sit there and you stare at it and eventually it magically disappears. That's weird. Think about it, that's weird. And what's happening, that water is somehow converting into vapor and the vapor is disappearing. You know, it becomes invisible to our eyes and as it rises up. Then, I mean, it's just brilliant. If you think about the hydrologic cycle for a minute, then as the vapor goes up, it coalesces, it cools and it coalesces and that's how we get clouds, right? This is nothing you don't know. And then the wind carries the clouds from over the ocean to over the land, right? And then there's this moment that triggers the rain to actually fall and it's just like a big sprinkler from sky from the sky it's just really something ancient people were befuddled by it they're like there's got to be water up there somewhere <laughs> right <laughs> like it's falling down we know water is heavy you know you know if you like got a drop of water and you and you and you let it out of your hand it would fall so how did it get up there Right? I mean, it's really, we take it for granted because we're all taught it in elementary school and we're like, this is the hydrologic cycle and you have to know this for the test. But it's brilliant as a water moving system, a transportation system for water. Absolutely. And it, what's crazy, it purifies the water. It takes the salt out, it takes any of the poisons out, unless it's acid rain, and it puts it over the land. Or you think about bees. Bees are incredible, marvels of engineering. Six legs, two compound eyes made of thousands of lenses, plus they have three simple eyes on top. They have two pairs of wings, and they beat their wings 200 times per second, hence the bzzz sound. They can fly up to six miles. Some, some of us could not walk six miles. Uh, <laughs> and they can fly up to 15 miles an hour which is really fast, that's a four minute mile, if you're running. Anybody in here can run a four minute mile? Anna, no? I can't run a four minute mile. Not, not if I tried my hardest, but a bee could fly a four minute mile. A one ounce of honey can fuel a bee to fly around the entire earth. There's enough energy in one ounce of honey to do that. 
The queen bee lives up to five years. That's a long time for an insect. In summer, she lays 2,500 eggs per day. What? <laughs> That's just insane. And she controls whether they're male or female eggs. She can pick which one they should be. Then you have worker bees. The worker bees are the females, and they can sting you. Those are the ones that sting you, but they die afterward. They make the honeycomb of hexagon-shaped cells. Look at that design. The hexagon is the most uh, space advantageous shape on the planet. It's, it's just beautiful. You look at it, you're like, wow, how do they know how to do that? And, this, and imagine the size of a bee's brain, right? It's just a nerve cluster. It's yeah, like, how is it able to do all of this? And yet they do, year in and year out. During the winter, they feed on the honey. They stay warm by forming a tight cluster. They communicate by dancing. They tell each other where food is and that sort of thing. And the bee, the honeybee, is the only insect that makes food we can eat. And it turns out that honey has all the substances necessary to sustain life, including proteins and water, sugar, all the things. One, and it never goes bad. Honey doesn't go bad. You don't have to refrigerate it. It's, it's still good. They, they find honey in Egyptian tombs and they warm it up. Rebecca was telling me about this and it's still honey. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the guy that had to taste it and find out, but uh, somebody did. They pollinate 80% of America's crops, which adds up to $14 billion of crop production. In America today, there are 2.4 million colonies of bees and two-thirds of them travel from place to place to pollinate crops, especially almonds in California, but many other crops as well. Here's what I want to say. Look at God's creation from the fabric of space-time that Einstein discovered to the tiny, minuscule photon of light that behaves in these bizarre ways to the hydrologic cycle to the honeybee. God's creation is magnificent is absolutely stunning. Now, I know there are problems in the world. I know that, okay? But at the same time, there is a beauty here. There is a grandeur. There is a complexity, a magnificence that we can't ignore. The world is well-made. It's well-made. I mean, we've been trying to destroy it for how many years? I don't even know it, but it's still here. <laughs> and in pretty good shape overall. Because God is powerful, and brilliant. He doesn't have to throw away something that gets broken, right? If you have a desire and enough time and resources and expertise, you can fix things, right? And so what God plans to do is to take our old world, which is like this old car, and work on it to make it new again. That's what God wants to do. He wants to restore our world. That is the plan. This is the kind of restoration that we're talking about. Look over in verse 26. I told you to go to Genesis 1, right? We read, Then God said, this is Genesis 1, 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps 
on the earth. This is the very first thing God says about people. Let them rule. Put them in charge of the earth, of reigning over everything. Let them have dominion. Right? So that's the very first thing God says, Genesis 1.26, is that we should have dominion. And then in verse 27, it says that we're made in God's image. You see that? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That means that we're in some ways similar to God, right? And he doesn't say this about the animals. He doesn't say the animals are made in my image. He says this about people, about humans. And then in verse 28, we get some commands. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be sterile and miserable and have no power. No, that's not what he says, right? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's commands are to reproduce, to rule the world and to eat freely. And I've heard that we have 10,000 taste buds on our tongues. I mean, God didn't have to do that. That, that was just sort of over the top, right? He could have just been like, two ta like one taste bud, like poisonous or good to eat, right? But we've got salty, we've got sweet, we've got spicy. It's just awesome. And so God is, I would argue, more of an Epicurean than a Stoic. I'll, I'll get to that later. But he's, he's more pro-pleasure than against pleasure. Then in verse 29, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. And so God creates the world. He makes people. Everything is perfect. Everything is beautiful. Everything is harmonious, in sync. And if you have a robust creation theology, if, that's, if, if you believe the world is the product of a loving, brilliant, powerful God who wants it to be a good place, a very good place, that's your cosmogony then your eschatology, what you believe about the end, it just makes sense that he would take his original creation that got messed up and, and aged and he fixes it. It's still the same thing, but it's different, right? And that's what God is planning to do to all of creation. There's another word for you too called uh, cosmology. Are you familiar with that word? It's your study of the universe, right? It's your logos about the cosmos, your understanding, uh, your beliefs, your rational account of the universe. And we're going to get into this later, but there's a famous Greek philosopher named Plato who believed that our universe was an imperfect copy of another universe. So there's, there's, yeah, there's another world out there a perfect world, and our world is a copy of that world. And then later on came the Gnostics, who claimed that our universe was the result of a cosmic act of rebellion by a 
a disobedient spirit who created it against the spirit realm. And that our, our universe is itself an evil material place. That's what the Gnostics believed, right? And so if that's what you think, then of course you want to escape the universe and go to that other realm that Plato talked about, the perfect realm, right? Which they called the Pleroma, and then Christians later called heaven, right? Or you want to escape your body and go to the higher realm of the Gnostic myth, right? However, if you believe that God created our world in the first place as an act of love and that he did a good job, as evidenced by the bee in the hydrologic cycle and Einstein's theories of relativity, then it makes sense that you would stay here, right? And so I have three little quotes for you here. You don't have to write them down, but I just want to show you this. These are, these are uh, historical quotes. The first is from the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle of Barnabas is second century. It's a Christian book. He says, the Lord says, behold, I will make the last things as the first. Do you, do you see the connection there? I will make the last things as the first. Or the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. For the end will be where the beginning is. Or the first main systematic theologian, Origen, he writes, for the end is always like the beginning. De Principis. So what we see here is whether we're talking about sort of like a, a, a more mainstream Christian or a sectarian Gnostic or a Christian philosopher, they all pretty much have an intuition that the universe, whatever you think it began, is how you think it will be in the end. Victor Gluckin said, what God originally wanted in the beginning, he will get in the end. That makes sense, right? And, and that's because God is powerful enough to make that happen. You might originally want something and then you have to settle or you have to compromise or you have to just give up on it. Be like, well, I really originally wanted to get an A in this class, but uh, I didn't do my research paper. So then I had to, you know. But like if you're, if you're pow as powerful as God, like you always pretty much get what you want eventually, right? Because he's eternal as well. That helps. The other verse I wanted to bring up, why don't you go ahead and turn there, is Isaiah 45, 18. I don't think I have a slide for that. Isaiah 45, 18 is a great text because it talks about God's purpose in creating the universe. All right, are you there yet? Isaiah 45, 18? What does it say? For thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it, what? All right, yours said empty and yours said a waste place. Right. He didn't make the earth some empty, abandoned waste place. He didn't create it in vain. What was God's thinking in making it? He did not create it empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. God's original plan for the earth was for it to be inhabited. And he says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. So God's plan from the beginning was to people the world. And so if the world ends up evacuated in the end of time, God's original plan gets thwarted. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see God getting outwitted by Satan or by people's fallenness so that he never gets his dream for the world. I think he does get his dream. We read about it also in Romans 8, 19 and 22. 
uh, it talks about how, we're not going to flip there, but it talks about how all of creation is groaning until the sons of God are revealed in their glory. In other words, until the day of resurrection, until that time when God makes everything wrong with the world right, the kingdom age comes, creation itself is subjected to futility. There is this sense in which the world itself, the physical world, is fallen. Right? And you guys are aware of this from Genesis chapter 3 and the original rebellion and then the downward spiral from there to the first fratricide to the time of Noah and all the sort of events that happen. The last book, it turns out, the book of Revelation, reflects, let's go there, Revelation chapter 21. The last book reflects the first book. You know what reflects means? It's like a, a mirror where... Maybe it's not exactly the same, like our modern-day mirrors, but if you catch a reflection, it's showing you what was looking at it, right? But it maybe is a little different because the color is not exactly the same, or the shape maybe is a little distorted. But it is, at the same time, the same thing, but it's different. And I think that's a good way to think about this. Look at Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's just beautiful, isn't it? He sees a new world, and he sees the city coming down, and he hears this voice, and is talking about how God himself is going to come down. In the Garden of Eden, it talks about how Adam was walking around, and he heard God's voice. And God spoke to him. God was walking in the cool of the morning or something like that, right, in Genesis? Yeah. It seems like God was there. In a way that he, I mean, God's here, but he's not here. You know what I mean? He's able to be present in, in the world through his spirit and however that all works. But in, in a very serious sense, he's not here. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. He says to Moses, if you see my face, what's going to happen? Yeah, you're going to die. You can't, you can't look at me and live, right? Well, there's an age coming when God, it says, look at that verse again, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's always his dream throughout Scripture, we'll see. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's beautiful, isn't it? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things, what? New. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. And so this is a description of what God plans to do ultimately. And then... 
look over at chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. That would be cool, huh? A tree that bears fruit each month. When a tree bears fruit, it's exciting. And there's this big focus on the tree and everyone's picking the fruit from the tree and then it stops bearing fruit and you're like, oh, yeah, that's an apple tree. It's kind of ugly. But like when it's bearing fruit, you're like, oh, I'm going to make apple pie. I'm going to make apple cider. I'm going to eat an apple. I'm going to do all these things because the fruit's in, right? And so in the, in the kingdom age, this tree of life is bearing fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. That's what Moses couldn't see, right? In that day, you'll be able to see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they will need no light or of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign. There's that kingdom language again. Forever and ever. There's lots of other kingdom verses in the book of Revelation. But my point for this lecture is simply to look at the bookends, to look at Genesis, original creation, and then to look at Revelation, the final state of the earth. And to say that there are incredible parallels. In Genesis, we read the recording about the beginning. Revelation records the end. In Genesis, you have a river flowing out of Eden. In Revelation, there's a river flowing from God's throne. In Genesis, you have the tree of life in the garden. In Revelation, you have the tree of life on either side of the river. In Genesis, it talks about, we didn't read this, but it talks about gold, bdellum, and onyx, these precious stones. In Revelation, there's a city, which we also didn't read about, but the city that comes down, it's in the second half of chapter 21, is described using all these precious stones and pearl, the pearly gates, it's actually in the Bible, in Revelation 21. And it talks about the streets being paved with gold and all that sort of thing. In Genesis, God's walking in the garden. In Revelation, God's dwelling with his people. He's dwelling. He's tabernacling. He's tenting with us, camping out. In Genesis, you have a garden. In Revelation, it's a city. So there's an interesting difference there, right? Genesis, everything's probationary. In other words... You have to stay on track or else you're going to lose it. That's what probation is. Whereas in Revelation, it's permanent. In Genesis, the serpent's there, right? And he deceives. In Revelation, Satan is done away with. In Genesis, God curses the ground. In Revelation, there's no more curse. And then the last one is, in Genesis, you have the first marriage, right? Adam and Eve. This is now... Uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman and a man. They became one flesh, right? And that whole part. In Revelation, you have the last marriage, right? It talks about the uh, final consummation of the bride of Christ. And so what God originally wanted in the beginning, he will get in the end. In fact, I would argue that the end is not just everything wrong with the world made right. It's that plus is some interesting upgrades, right? 
I would say it's even better than it was in the beginning. And so because typically people conceive of the end based on what they believe God originally wanted in the beginning, I think it's critical for us to get a, a robust creation theology so that we can see how God designed this universe, how he created the systems that are all around us, things that we don't even think about, like how the protons and neutrons stick together in the center of an atom. I mean, think about it. Protons are all positive, right? You take a bunch of things with the same charge and try to stick them together. What's going to happen? Right, and that's what an atomic bomb is. When you, when you overwhelm an atom, and then that, uh, those, those protons just blow apart, right? What keeps them from blowing apart? The strong force. That's what we call it. Isn't that pathetic? We call it the strong force. That's about as much as science taught me about nuclear cohesion inside the atoms. Like, well, there's this force called the strong force. I'm like, really? They're, I'm like, is there a weak force? They're like, yeah, there's one of those too. That's what holds the electrons. I mean, the, the universe, I mean, is so much cooler and more interesting than I think most of us realize because we're just more focused on our own lives and what we need to do. But when you really stop and think about it, it's really impressive. So let's take a break and uh, then we'll come back and look at the next thing, which will be Kingdom Covenants. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to this. Stay tuned next week for part two of the Kingdom of God class when we'll look at the covenants God made with Abraham and David. But before I close out, I just wanted to read out two comments from episode 83, questions about gay and lesbian Christians. David Pace writes, I would like to know if you believe in laying on hands and praying that God deliver all of us from our bondage. Being gay or lesbian or whatever we call ourselves is a bondage, and Jesus came to set free captives for those in bondage. Then he goes on to say, I believe we as Christians can receive power from on high, not of ourselves, but from above to be used just like they were in the apostles' days and after that. What do you think? This is in question to the gay and lesbian Christian. Thank you and be blessed. Uh, David, thanks for writing in. As far as the idea of laying hands on and praying for people, I think that's totally biblical. We see it throughout the New Testament. And at the same time, I think we need to also recognize that healing is God's decision, not mine. I think there are certainly some necessary requirements as far as having faith and actually praying and, and reaching out towards God. But in the end, it's his decision on whom he heals and, and whom he doesn't. So I think it's great to lay hands on. I think it's great to pray. But at the same time, even if someone doesn't receive that miracle, and there are cases where people have received deliverance from a homosexual orientation. But look, whether you receive it or you don't, the simple fact is we're all called to live by the same Christian ethic that we see in the Bible, and that would include limiting sex to heterosexual marriage. So so my answer is yes, I believe in that, and I would pray for somebody if they wanted prayer. I, I don't believe in coercion. I think if somebody doesn't want healing or doesn't want to change, then I shouldn't get involved until they change their minds. And I think you have to respect people's uh, boundaries. There have been some instances 
I watched this whole retelling of a guy who was forced to attend uh, some sort of like gay conversion camp where they electrocuted him when they showed him pictures of naked men and it did not work. It traumatized him and now he can't so much as give a man a hug without having echo pain from this horrible ordeal he went through as a teenager. So I'm going to have to come out totally against that sort of coercive strategy and in, but in favor of honest-hearted people who are seeking God and are and are looking for a miracle. Brian writes in, he says, Sean, these past four Restitutio episodes have been most helpful for me, especially in regards to relationships with those who identify as LGBTQ. I've learned in regards to all people, no matter their sin of choice, that it's better to develop relationships based on loving our neighbor or enemy before discussing biblical matters. Much damage has been done. A great example is Caleb Kaltenbach's story, specifically the part where Christians were throwing things at him and his mom and calling them names because of his mom's lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 5, 10 to 13 comes to mind. I think the context of that passage is not to focus on the sin of those outside the body of Christ, not to judge outsiders. Certainly, we can shine the light of Christ by living out our lives in a manner that is worthy of being in his, his ambassador, but to identify as a disciple of Christ and hurl insults and projectiles at our fellow man, how will that lead someone into the kingdom of God? Thanks again for these episodes. You are exactly right, Brian. Uh, This sort of behavior that has happened um, from Christians to uh, same-sex attracted folks in the past has been, in some cases, really deplorable and embarrassing. However, that doesn't mean that we should retreat into accepting everyone's ethic, no matter if it contradicts the Bible. So when it comes to outsiders, should we be surprised that unbelievers act like unbelievers? And as far as people who are interested in following Christ, then we do have a standard, and we can lovingly help people and walk alongside them in trying to live that out the best we can in the power of the Spirit as God enables us. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to Episode 83, I encourage you to. It's an episode where I retell Becca Cook's story, but then also go through seven common questions related to same-sex attraction and Christianity. Hopefully this is the sort of episode you'll be able to share with others, whether they're struggling with this or they are in relationship with people who are struggling with this, friends, family, whatever, that this could be a helpful resource. So check that out. Also, on that uh, episode 83, I've got just a ton of links to some really fine books and YouTube talks and other podcasts uh, to help you and equip you to dig deeper into this subject. So check that out and visit us online at restitudio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.